But the application this morning is if you want to learn something, you choose to. Right? Does that not make sense, right? If you want to learn something, and we're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning, you choose to. When I was 14, my mom asked me to play piano for the church, and I said no. And she said, okay, you're done taking lessons. I've spent lots of money on you. And I said, fine, I'll quit. I didn't touch a piano for 15 years. Right? To learn to play, you have to choose to. All right? um, for my teachers, I have teachers here. When I came out here six and a half years ago, I was probably reading at a grade eight, maybe a grade nine level. Okay? My reading and writing reflected that. Um, I had to choose to learn. I had to choose to fall in love with this book because I knew it would change my life. Anyway, much more could be said. Right? But when it comes to learning about God, learning about the things of God, it's a choice. Right? And as I looked in the mirror this morning and, and, and Jesus is very patiently teaching these folks as he travels all through Israel, three and a half years, just pleading with them to do what? Choose. Believe in Him. Choose His way. Choose His kingdom. Turn from their lives. Choose. Come to Him, His way. And people wouldn't because they didn't want to. That's the bottom line of that. This morning, it will reflect that. Um, you have to learn these doctrines Jesus wasn't going to walk the earth. He wasn't going to hold their hands. You have to learn this to be a believer in Him. It's not a choice. And that, that's just where we're going to be this morning with all love. And, and you imagine the, the, the work that, that goes in, the work to learn to read, the word work, try and write a proper paper, which I still don't understand. Um, I work with these things. But you choose to. And, and the love for the Lord, you choose to get in the Scriptures and discover who He is. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that You would lead us this morning in this study. Lord, John chapter 11 has a lot of, of details in it. Lord, it's one of the last stops before you, you headed towards Calvary. You headed towards giving Your life. And Lord, the folks that You were interacting with, they had to understand these truths for what came next. And I think to each one in this room, Lord, I pray that even as we speak, the gospel would be very clear. Lord, we need a relationship with you through placing our faith in what you did on Calvary. Lord, you died, you were buried, you, you rose again on the third day so we could have that personal saving relationship with you. I pray each person in this room would understand their need and either has done that or maybe this morning would be the day. Lord, I pray that these truths, as we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection, would come out loud and clear. The need for us to be able to explain them. Because people are walking away with questions. And that's, that's, that's heartbreaking. I just pray you would guide me through some of the details. We do have um, pictures and different things and trying to make this fun and interactive. Let's not miss the truth, though, Lord. You are the promise of the resurrection. And that, that is, that is the, the center <laughs> of some of our foundational things. And I pray that you would just lead us in the study. Let me just pray these things in your precious name. Amen. John chapter 11. Um, part of me was just thinking there even with that. Uh, I hear often, and I'm not going to look 
but the idea of not being smart enough to understand these things. And uh, when we make that choice, we don't have to be smart enough, right? God honors our persistence with this. And it's in John chapter 11. Um, actually, I think I'm going to go through these pictures real quick. Um, we're, we're looking at Mary and Martha sending a messenger uh, towards where Jesus is uh, in Perea. Um, Lazarus is sick. So this is a picture, and I'm still trying to figure out what lights, but you can see this is a, a picture of modern-day Bethany. Okay? Um, Chris and I had a privilege of going there this spring. This isn't one of the pictures that we took, um, but it's a real-life place. All right? These are real-life people in a real-life place, real-life land. Okay, next slide. All right, this here is a picture of modern-day Mount of Olives. If you've ever wondered what uh, it looks like and where Jesus is going to return to, and I'll try and step out of the road here, um, this is what it looks like. It's a graveyard, right? You have, uh, you have, and I think I'm correct in this, you've got the Muslims closest to the wall. You've got the Christians in the center of Mount of Olives, and at the top you have the, the Jewish. So it's broken up into thirds, Okay. Um, I don't know whether that changes your perspective of, of, of what the Mount of Olives looks like, but that's it. Um, next slide. All right, so when we understand the town of Bethany where Lazarus, uh, Mary, and Martha lived, it was on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So you have the temple here. On, on this side, we're looking east, Mount of Olives. It was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So it's a good walk. Those of you that love hiking mountains or Mount Carlton, that's nothing compared to these hikes. I mean, the, the, the folks back then must have had calf muscles on them like that because everything's either uphill or downhill. Okay, but it, it's a fair jaunt. But that, that was Bethany. The house means a, a house of, of welcome, um, the house of figs. But that's where Jesus found his refuge, his place of rest. We find himself going there to be quiet. And I think there's one more slide with pictures on it. That's it? Okay, so we got the, the location of it, and I'd just like to begin by reading verses 1 to 6 this morning. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. You almost want to put verse 2 in a, in a, in a brackets here. Um, John is making a note. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant, fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Okay? What happens in verse 2 is what John chapter 12 is all about. Okay, that's where Mary anoints Jesus' body for burial. Okay, so we see we John, John clarifying that. Therefore, right, because the messenger has been sent and Lazarus is sick. Um, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now we'll study this a little bit more in depth next week, but there was obviously a previous relationship here, right? As you read this verse, right? The one whom you love is sick. Jesus had a previous relationship with them. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There was a reason why Lazarus was sick. 
right? God had a higher plan for this, right? God had a purpose, and it was going to affirm and, and acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was, which you read that, and that really doesn't make sense, right? Unless you recognize that God's plan included this, and it was all about lifting up, exalting the Son of God. So here we have in John chapter 11, and we'll lay some framework this morning. Here we have the Apostle John bringing us to a troubled home. Okay, I want you to, to relate with these sisters. Lazarus is laying uh, on his bed. He's sick, um, and, and they're sending messages. a troubled home. There's sickness. There's fear. We know this narrative. There's, there's later to be grief and mourning. And they all play a very important part to three things that we understand what God is doing here. Number one, as John writes to the early church, they had to understand, number one, that Jesus was the Son of God. They had to understand that Jesus was sent by God the Father. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father. Jesus is God. The early church in 89 had to understand that. Jesus is God. Secondly, the early church in AD 90, right, broken homes, sickness, fear, later to be grief and mourning, had to understand that the Father's loving hand and purpose is over each son and daughter. Right? Anyone who has a relationship with God the Father, God's loving hand is over that situation. Right? Whether it's sickness, God's hand is over that. Whether it is death, God's hand is over that. God, God has a plan for why His children go through the suffering and the, the emotional distress of these things. God's loving hand is over that. And thirdly, there was an emphasis on the resurrection of Christ that needed to be understood here. This is a non-negotiable, theological, doctrinal truth that we need to understand. The early church in AD 90 had to see the importance of knowing and believing that it is through the resurrection of Christ as a first fruit that we, as born-again believers, will be resurrected at the rapture. All right? That was an imperative. They needed to understand these things. And we'll see that flesh out. Turn with me very quickly to Titus chapter 2. First and Second Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter 2. It summarized it this morning as I was sitting in my chair. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 13 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Right? These are the truths that we hold. This is the Spirit illuminating us to, to what we have in Christ. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We're not going to stay in this present age, are we? No, we're not. We're supposed to be anticipating. We're going through these things. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope 
and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you think about that. Fear, loss, grief, there. It, it, it's but for a moment. We're just sojourning through. We're looking to His appearing. And that's a, a promise that needs to be incorporated into these things. So back to John chapter 11. They had to understand that Jesus is God. They had to understand that the Father's loving hand was over every situation, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, grief, mourning, God's purposes for His children. He touches on those. And the importance of knowing and believing that the resurrection of Christ, Jesus walking through the grave bodily, raised again, defeat over Satan, sin and death, is our promise of resurrection. They had to understand those three things. So if we come quickly back to understanding that this isn't the first time Mary and Martha and Jesus have crossed paths. Right? It's not. We've got to go back to, to Luke chapter 10 to, to find that first meeting. I'm going to try not to rush through this, but this is exciting and, and there are details that fall into place. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. You remember with me last week, and I think I maybe mentioned it the week before, that in between John chapter 10, 21 and John chapter 10, 22, there's about three months time span that take place there. And in, in the midst of those three months, that scene change that's taking place Right? We have Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 12, and the first part of Luke chapter 13. So when we pause and think with me, all right, John chapter 11 is taking place. It's, it's in the vicinity of, of about three weeks to Passover, three weeks to Calvary. Three months before that, Jesus is meeting Mary and Martha and Lazarus for the first time. Which means, as they're sending these messengers with Lazarus is sick, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick, it means that they're new believers. And you pause and you think on that. Here you have new believers that, that, that are recognizing that there is something drastically going on in their lives and that need to reach out for Jesus, whom they know is the answer is there. New believers. Beautiful. Let's meet their first interaction here. Verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. All right, we've done our homework now. What was that certain village? Bethany. Yes, that's right. Right, Bethany. They entered a certain village, Bethany. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him, who's him? Jesus, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. Now I know you, you've heard this text and, and you've heard it taught. Just read it and take joy from this. Right? And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Right? Here's a woman sitting at the feet of Jesus, the feet of the Lord, hearing his word. Can you see that hunger this morning? Right? It's just, she's just, just, something has been missing in her life. And, and Jesus is, is explaining the Old Testament scriptures just as we've been doing the last several months, right? And, and, and starting to connect for her. She's sitting. I almost wanted to sit on the floor there, just, just sitting underneath the word. I didn't know whether I'd get back up. Right? But she's, but she's sitting there, right? Hungry for the word. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving. Right? If, you have a, if you're marking your Bible, just put a little underline underneath that distracting. It means in the Greek to be dragged all around. As Jesus, as Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, right, and Jesus is explaining the word of God to her, poor Martha is being dragged all around that house serving. Now, there's nothing wrong with serving. Let's see what Jesus has to say here, though. And Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Someday... We may come back and, and preach through this message. But you have one sitting, right, knowing what's going to change her life. Knowing what has been missing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in the word of God. You have the other one feeling like she's being dragged around and, and, and thinking there that the, the priority here is, is what I can do with my hands. And Jesus answered, verse 41, and said to her, Martha... Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Think of that, that just the patience and grace Jesus would have said that with. Uh, here's, a, here's a woman that's obviously upset. That, that word worried means anxious. <laughs> you know, that, that word troubled, and, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but they explain it to me this way. It's like a roiling pot. Right, that water, it, it, it's roiling, it, it, it's out of that bubble. And, there, and she's in a place of distress. Right? Mary isn't helping me do it. Why is she choosing to sit under this first? Jesus says, verse 42, But one thing is needed. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her don't need to be rocket science to see, see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, Mary is before the, the one thing that's needed here. The one thing that's going to transform her life. Yes, serving is important, working with your hands. Um, but it's the Word of God that changes. It's the Word of God that will lead you out of that, that whole ditch, burden, trespass that, that's tripping you up. I mean, this is what led me out of fill in the blank. Right? The one thing, the good part, is what leads, leads you out. Just very quickly, this text is taking place three months before John 11, which means that they're new believers sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning these things. You've got Martha worried about the doing with the hands before Jesus and Mary choosing the good part that is going to change her heart and life. Right, it's going to transform her because that's what it promises to do. That good part she finds sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet as the, the word is being taught and explained. She's hungry, earnest for the word of God. Coming to the scriptures where Jesus teaches from. Just to, to, to I guess, drive it home. But it's the word of God that heals transforms, leads, guides, speaks to us when we feel that there is only darkness there. It's this. It's this. Pastor in me sits down and thinks, and again with timelines, and, and this must be my personality, because it's all leading towards the cross. It's all leading towards the beginning of the church. It's all leading towards Paul's journeys and Peter's. I thought to myself, how much of a valuable asset Mary would have been to the first church 
at Pentecost. How, a, how much of a valuable asset Mary would have been, and Martha. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not picking sides here, but, but Mary in the early church with a sincere desire, a transforming life as she, she knows where that good part is at the Scriptures, what a valuable asset she would have been. When you think of, of I think, a scenario, if we were to start a ministry in January, right? That's that four-month period. Now you think about it yourself. Who would be part of that here? Right? Who, who would be able to be part of it? Who would be passionate about it? it just, just in that brief time, imagine what a church full of people hungry for the Word, hungry to know Christ and follow Christ. Imagine what they could do for the glory of God. Right? Desiring the good part. It's passionate. I mean, it is, it's something to get excited about because it begins here. You've got to know who you believe to believe them, right? Does that not make sense? You've got to know who you believe to believe them. So come with me back to John chapter 11, and I hope that just kind of grounds you. Jesus is making his way um, towards the cross. In John 11, verse 3, we see the sisters send to him. Now you have Martha who learned that valuable lesson that it is, it is the words that Jesus speaks. It is knowing him. It is coming to his feet, understanding the promises that we have. That's the important. And the sisters send to him. They knew that calling out to Jesus, they knew that calling out to Jesus was what they needed to do. Right? When something was out of their control. When, when something that, 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 that they were just broken over, they had to call out to Jesus. And that is the first thing that we need to do. Call out to Jesus. And we don't have time to get into intercession, but we have, if we've placed our faith in Christ and we have that, we've examined and we have confessed our sin, we have first-hand audience with the Savior. The Spirit brings our needs before Him. Right? He takes them before the throne of God. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Jesus here in this passage, and this is where we're, we're going to knuckle down into that promise of the resurrection. Jesus was going to teach and affirm a truth that these people had to understand. In John chapter 11, we're going to see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The disciples are here. And there's a group of Jewish people around that are going to watch what Jesus does and many are going to believe. But you know what? There's a group that chooses not to and they go to the Pharisees. And we see the plot begin to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There's a lot going on, but there's a truth here that the inner circle had to understand for what was coming. And again, it, it, this is about three weeks before Calvary. The, the inner disciples, the, the, the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had to understand that Jesus is the promise of the resurrection. They had to understand this. So we've seen, we've seen Jesus go to the Sanhedrin, right? The Feast of Tabernacles, right? Before the leadership of Israel, they've rejected him. We've seen Jesus go to Israel, right? The people. And they've said, mm-mm, right? Rocks are thrown and, 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 and everything underneath the sun. Now Jesus is going to the inner group that have to understand that he is going to raise from the dead. Because without understanding that, 
three weeks from now when they place Jesus' body in the ground, it's over. Right? All those promises are done. Everything that he promised was a lie. They had to understand this truth. Um, they needed to understand the promise of the resurrection. A couple more details just before we, we jump in. And, and, and again, the, the framework is important. When is John writing this letter, this gospel? It's around 80, 90. Right? This is a long time after Pentecost. Um, this is three generations. This is a third generation church. I was thinking, this is like my grandparents writing down what they believe and passing it on to me. Right? A lot of things can change in the midst of there. And then maybe someday we'll get into a little bit of, of, of that kind of theology. But, but here John is writing to the third generation church in AD 90. This church was obviously under attack if he was going to uh, emphasize the resurrection of Christ. Right? The church was obviously under attack. Maybe the church was unable to explain the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That kind of quiets us. Right? How would you explain it to our teens that are sitting here? Right? How would you explain the importance, why, why you have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? It's important. Right? And there's two things that we need to understand as the church of AD 90 was being challenged on these truths. Number one, Jesus is God. That's why he wrote the, the Gospel of John, John 20, 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. People were saying, no, no, Jesus, Jesus was just a man. Or the flip side of that, no, Jesus was just a phantom. Jesus was just, was just a, a figment. That's challenged today. People are saying there that Jesus is not God. And then the death, burial, and resurrection... They were being caught up in Gnostic thinking within the church. Uh, dualism, which is, is some of our New Age stuff still, with light and spirit being good and physical being evil. And Greek culture and mythology. And you say, well, why do we need to understand that? Why do I need to know this this morning? Well, you're living in a culture that believes in things like soul sleep. Right? You're living in a culture that, 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 that is looking to, to some sort of, and I got reincarnation, Right? That's your, that ties in with your yoga right? and, and opening your mind and, and the new age movements. Um, inner spark, that's things I read all the time. You're looking for your inner spark. That's not from the Word of God. Right? That's culture. And even this morning, one of the pastors from the ministerial mentioned, we've heard of Bethel music, right? the Bethel movement. Apparently there, there's a section of them that roll on graves trying to, to, I think it's called grave sucking, where they try and get the anointing from the, the person that's passed away. There's stuff like that going on all around us. Right? The death, burial, and resurrection needs to be <laughs> firm, unmoving. And you may be sitting here as a, a seasoned warrior in the faith, but we're missing generations that either don't care or they can't explain it themselves. And that's what has me go, you know what? No, we need to work through these things. Um, I've asked the question um, before, you know, you're working through someone who's broken, a loved one, and you ask them, do they know the gospel? Do they know what they have in Christ? 
right? And we'll just walk through this real, real quickly. As Jesus went to the cross, why did he go to the cross? To pay for our sins, right? His lifeblood, he, he was our substitute. His lifeblood paid the price for our sins. That should have been my lifeblood, right? As he suffered on the cross and his beating, that should have been my body. He took that for me. Why did Jesus go into the grave? Why did they physically have to put him in the grave? Three days, right? There was a sentence, right? The law condemns the sinner, right? We had a guilty, guilty stamp positionally, judicially before him. As Jesus went into the grave, he took my place, Right? He, he satisfied the law. He, he fulfilled the requirements of the law. He removed that sentence. What did we receive when he walked out of that grave? Victory. Victory. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. That is the, 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 the promise that we have in Christ. We have that victory as he walked out of the gra- grave that's offered to us. Do we have our struggle still? Yeah, of course we do. We have our sin natures, right? We have life. We live in a, a world that's constantly barraging us. We make poor choices. I've been there. But we've promised victory. When we're indwelt, the Spirit leads us through that. That is the importance of knowing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But that's not for everybody, is it? No, it's not. Right? I don't think we believe in universalism here. There's a heaven for those who recognize that they need what Jesus did, cross, grave, rose again, right? And that is our promise. And when we recognize we're sinners, we, we say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me, right? You place your faith in him and you, and you turn your life, you give your life to him and you begin walking in that new life. It's sealed forever. I mean, we could get into that again, but that's what you have. Obviously, as John is writing these truths and he puts John 11 in here, this was being challenged, Right? This was being twisted. The people in the pews could not explain the importance of the resurrection of Christ. I think we should go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm starting to get warm up here. Must be dancing around too much. Because you can't just talk about this without reading it in Scripture, right? Because if you're sitting down with that person, Right? And, and, and they're, they're looking to you for answers. What is the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? You don't just want them to take your word for it. You have to show them from what you're building your house on. Right? You have to show them from, from, from what God has given us. 1 Corinthians 15. Put this in context. Right? This is being written 30 years before the Apostle John writes the Gospel of John. Right? 30 years after the beginning of the church. Right? How old? I guess I'll, I'll just use me. I'm 35. <laughs> right? You start putting it in perspective. This is the second young generation behind, and they're already, and we're going to see this in a second. So they're emphasizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Verse 1 Moreover, brethren. Who's the brethren? The church. Church of Corinth again. Right? The church. Born again believers. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. Right? That good news, that, that way for you to step into God's presence, by which you are also, pardon me, by which you also, by which also you are saved. Right? We're saved from the wrath that's coming. 
We're saved from our sins, that separation from God. We're saved from an eternal hell separated from God. Right? You are saved, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Much can be said there, right? But if you believe the gospel and you place your faith in Christ, the Bible says you are sealed. That is a permanent thing. That is something that you need to constantly be coming back to, right? I, I am saved. For I delivered to you first, verse 3, of all that which I also received. Number one. And this is you sharing this with that person sitting there. And, and, and what is the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He took my place. He did what, what I couldn't do. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, verse 4, right? There was a, a condemnation. There was a sentence on the sinner. But you know what? He took my place. He satisfied it. He fulfilled something that I could never do. And he was buried and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Bodily. Resurrected. That's where that, that, that call, that trumpet sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first and we'll be caught to meet up in the air. That's where this promise comes from. According to the Scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen. Right? It's proven. Evidence. He was seen. He was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And if you're still doubting, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me, Paul, also, as by one born out of due time. Come down to verse 11. Therefore, because of all that, that he's listed thus far about the gospel and, and why we believe what we believe, therefore, whether it was I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. And that's what the church was built on. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how, verse 12, how do some among you, the brethren in the church, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 30 years after the beginning of the church, and there's people within the church going, no, that's not going to happen. There isn't going to be a resurrection of the dead. Kind of back to this question. Now, why do I need to know this, Jeremy? Why is this important? Because you have loved ones and people in your life going off to college and university that no longer believe, no longer can, can, can say. They, they're challenged with it in school and they're like, well, um, it's just, it, it is what it is. I just believe it. Well, you believe what? Well, I believe he died for me, okay? And I'm not saying that's not enough for salvation, but they can't articulate the importance of knowing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we send them out unarmed. Right? It, it, it's terrifying. Come back with me. How do some among you, all right? These are church kids, church call and career, um, church people sitting in the pew. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. There's no resurrection. We have nothing to believe in. It's built on the sand. Keep reading. Verse 15, yes, 
And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. I hope you don't have a futile faith this morning. I hope you understand that there's a, a beginning, there's a process here, there's an end that we know is going to take place. But many people do. Many people live as though they have a futile faith and they give up. I don't even know anymore. Your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Right? Everybody that's died before, having looked forward to the Messiah, it, it, it was to no avail. If in this life, verse 19, only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Sure can get focused on this life sometimes, can't we? Sins, chains, brokenness, things that, that we have no control over. Our hope isn't in this life. Our hope is in the next. Our hope is in the resurrection of Christ. One day we will be caught up and stand in his presence. But now, verse 20, and we'll stop here. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We're starting to see the importance of why John puts John chapter 11 in this, this wonderful gospel. Christ is the resurrection promise. And we have to understand that. We have to be able to articulate that. So come back to John chapter 11 and we'll try and land this plane. If nothing else, Christ is the promise of the resurrection. It's not about this life. We will be, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a born again believer looking for that call, that trumpet sound. We will be caught up to meet him in the air. John chapter 11. Um, again, just a, a little bit of timeline. We see in John chapter 10, verse 39 to 42, leading up to this. It says, Therefore they sought again to seize him, Jesus, but he escaped out of their hand. Right? Jesus had to escape out of the hand of the people he was ministering to. Uh, I don't want to use the word pleading because there was an authority here. There was a line being drawn. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Do I have a slide for that, Edward? That map with Perea on it? Can you make that a little bit bigger? That purple dot right at the top of the... No, down, down, down. Yeah, right there. Right where your mouse is. We can suck that in. We understand that Judea and Samaria and Galilee and Batnus and Perea is where we're looking there. Can we... Can, okay, anyway. Um, Perea, they're Roman provinces. Okay, so where, where Jesus goes um, out, where they say, he goes out to where Jordan was baptizing, it's a different province. It's about a two-day journey outside of there. This is where John the Baptist began his ministry. I got a map, you can look at it in person, I can print it off there. <laughs> but it, it, it's interesting to see, you know, he, he's moving out of Jerusalem, it's no longer safe for him. It's no longer safe for him to minister in Judea. I mean, the, we are this close, it's three weeks to Calvary and people do not want to listen. Um, 
Verse 41, then many came to him and said, John performed signs. All right, I will not get it too. <laughs> we tried. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So we're in Perea. Uh, and I hope this isn't confusing. This is, he, he, he moves out, and this is about three months, okay, to Calvary. John 11 is three weeks to Calvary. So as Jesus goes out to a little village, and it's called Bethany too, so we'll add to that a little bit, all right? He starts making his way back to Jerusalem, okay? Um, he couldn't minister any longer. And from there, I've got to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 13 one more time. Luke chapter 13, hopefully this will connect it for you. Jesus is chased out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, goes out to Perea. This is three months, okay? Now we find ourselves, he's going to begin his journey back to Jerusalem for that meeting, that fullness of time there where he's going to meet on Calvary. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. Are we there? And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Okay, so he went out to where John the Baptist started baptizing, right? And he's ministering, people are getting saved there, and he's making his way back to Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Right? All of a sudden we see the line is being drawn, right? He's making that journey, that final journey to Calvary. Are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say, will seek to enter and will not be able. What's he speaking of here? Speaking of the kingdom. Right? He's talking about having a relationship with God. We read this and we understand that there's only one way into a relationship with God. There's only one way into heaven and that's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There are some, for many, I say, will seek to enter and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. Right? This idea that you know who God is. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. You might have an acquaintance. You might know who he is. But if you've never placed your faith in Christ, that door remains shut. There is no promise. There is no salvation. Then you will say, verse 20, begin to say, verse 26, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Next week we'll look a little bit at phileo and agape love. But you know, we, we know who each other are. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. It gets serious in a hurry, doesn't it? Jesus is teaching on his way back to Jerusalem. This is the last pass to Calvary. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourself is thrust out right? heaven God's presence hell separated for eternity 
Right? You're reading this with me. The line is black or white. Jesus is making his way to Calvary and he's teaching this as he, as he goes. Luke chapter 14, verse 16. Right? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to allow Jesus to preach this message for us this morning. He's making his way to Calvary and he's, he's, he's telling the people, you need to make a choice. Verse 16, Luke 14. Then he said to them, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many, right? I mean, come, come, believe, come. And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who are invited, come, for all things are now ready. The time is now. The time of salvation is now. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. Right? There are many excuses that can be made for not giving your life to Christ, committing your life to Christ, turning your entire life, all kit and caboodle. You might say there, Lord, you don't even want this. He wants it. He wants you to lay at his feet. Don't make excuses. Jesus is telling his own countrymen this as he makes his way to the cross. Luke 16, I think I'm just going to have to read through this very quickly. Luke 16, you wonder about what happens after you die. You wonder about what it means to be a born-again believer and, and, and God calls you home. Well, this is your chapter. If you wonder what happens to you after you die and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, and we need to listen to this. This is how Jesus explains it to the, his countrymen. Verse 15, we'll just begin there. And he's talking to the Pharisees who have their empty religion. They don't have a relationship with God. They're rejecting Christ. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Right, we could pause there and, and, and just end it, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It doesn't matter where you stand in the public eye. It doesn't matter what you have as possession. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. God knows your hearts. And all those things are an abomination, right? If they're not done for Him. And we understand what we're saying here. Verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Everyone. There's no escaping what's coming, right? There is no escaping the, the next step. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. One, one tittle, one jot, one, one marking of God's truth. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced for her husband commits adultery. We looked at that in prayer meeting, the things that the Pharisees were promoting here. Come to verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, and was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Right, you've got a rich man who's obviously hardened, and, and we'll see this in a second, rich man who, who has no need for God, who has elevated himself and position with man, who has made himself a God with pride. He doesn't need the salvation. He doesn't need what Jesus has come to bring. And then you have this beggar. You have this man covered in sores. You have this man broken who's just in a desperate need for what only God can give. Faith 
faith in what God offers and provides, and a man that does not need God. Well, what happens? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 20. No, we already read that. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died, okay, and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Why don't you pause and think? Right? This is your theology. I'm taking angelology right now in, in school, right? When you pass away, the angels carry you into God's presence. You're reading it with me. Right? Do you believe that? You, you know what happens. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's right here. Okay? We keep reading. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades. Okay? The person who placed their faith in God's offered righteousness is carried into God's presence. And the person who is in his own unrighteousness rejecting the gospel is carried into torment in Hades. And he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in the bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. You don't have to preach hellfire and brimstone. You just have to read it. Right? You reject Christ, there's torment. There, there's separation. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. God has offered. He's done everything He can for you to come to faith in Him. But there's a rejection. We read it. And besides all this, there is a, between us, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. We have the truth of what happens after we die. Important. You need to be able to understand and articulate that. So this, I promise, turn with me back to John chapter 11 and, and we'll close. John chapter 11. Why is it important to understand that this chapter is all about Christ being the resurrection promise? Because if Christ hadn't died, we'd all be in that Hades torment. Right? Because I'm not a righteous man. I can't pay for my own sins. Christ did that for me. If Christ didn't go to the grave and fulfill the law, satisfy the sentence, right? I would be in that torment. I can't do this on my own. If he didn't rise again, I would be a pitiable man because I would have no hope. Do we see the, 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 the need to understand the promise of the resurrection? So John chapter 11, if I was to put my finger on the, the intent and what John is, is challenging and, and emphasizing in the early church of AD 90, it's verse 25. Verse 25, John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus speaking. Jesus, the Son of God. God is speaking. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Death is scary. I've sat with, with many now. And I've listened. But this is your hope. This is the promise as a born-again believer. You can place it before them and say, read these words and, and, and be at peace. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's the question this morning. Amen. Thank you, Anne. Amen. Do you believe this? Yes. With all my heart. My hope isn't for this life. I'm, I've lived this life. I, I've, I've went down that. I mean, it is, it's not about now. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, 
the Son of God who is come into the world. Three weeks before Calvary, they had to understand that He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is, he is the, the only way to the Father. Can you imagine if they didn't get this? Right? And uh, we'll look at this a little bit more next week. If you mark your Bibles, just put a star beside these three verses. Conversations with your, with your loved ones, with your broken, broken families, whatever it is. Right? These are the truths that you have to run to. I am the resurrection and the life. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And, and uh, my heart's just moved. Even just saying what it is that I received when I placed my faith in you back, back when I was five. Did I understand it? No, of course not. Did I want to understand it? Oh, I think I went through my teenage years, not truly, but I thank you for the teachers that you put in my life. Thank you for, for, for Ron and Sharon Gordon and the Word of Life um, youth group, Lord, that invested, even though I was, anyway, a teenager. But Lord, I think of my time running, and I think of my brokenness, and I thank you that you brought me back to these truths. Lord, I thank you that you've spared my life many, many times. And I just pray, I pray that these truths would settle in on our hearts this morning as a church. Lord, we as a, a, a church, whether we're in the pew or the teaching ministries of this, of this church family, Lord, we need to be able to explain this when called upon. I pray that even maybe this afternoon we would sit down and read back through some of these chapters, 1 Corinthians 3, Luke 10, um, John 11, and we would, we would ask ourselves, do I understand this? And if there were questions, we would reach out. I pray that we would just be striving to be that Christ-centered, gospel-focused church. And oftentimes that, that just starts today. So I pray that you would move in our hearts and that you would just draw us towards the commission that you've called us to. And we just praise you, praise you that we can understand these truths. In your precious name, amen.